The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Take your Bible with me and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Our focal text today is verses 7 through 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 7, invites you to stand as we acknowledge this is the Word of God. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of of God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you would instruct our hearts and our minds and that you would prepare us to go from this place as your people, recognizing who we are, that we are jars of clay who have been entrusted with the greatest treasure of all time, the glorious gospel. Sober us and encourage us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last fall, Celeste and I had the opportunity to travel to England. And in London, we visited the Tower of London, which I will not take the time to explain to you. But there in part of the Tower of London, I held the crown jewels. Where the king's current or the queen's current crown is located. The jewels that make up that crown are worth $3.5 billion. It is a sight to behold. As the lights come through the incredible diamond that sits on the top of it and all the other beautiful jewels there. But I can tell you this. I can remember the image. I can remember the light jumping off of of the diamond. But as I walked out, here's what I do not remember. I do not remember anything about the display. I do know I couldn't touch it, but that's about it. I don't remember the design. I don't remember the color scheme of the room. I don't remember anything but the crown. That's basically the point here. The point is the focus is not on the method of display. The point is the treasure or the crown. So to display his power for his glory, 
God entrusts the treasure of the gospel to jars of clay. This is our main idea today. The first thing we want to see is that God entrusts the treasure of the gospel to jars of clay. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So let's be clear what the treasure is. Verse 6. For God who has said, let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The treasure is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, or simply stated, the gospel. The treasure is the gospel. And we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, if Paul were to write this in 2020, he might write, we have this treasure in Tupperware, or we have this treasure in Rubbermaid, an insignificant way of holding something, which we normally would use something like that for food or something expendable. He's saying something of utter value is in this jar of clay. Clay jars were unaccept- unexceptional. They were affordable to everyone, regardless of your social status. They were disposable, and they were put to wide variety of uses in the ancient world. They were used for storing most anything. If you studied or have read or have been to any kind of archaeological dig, laying around on the ground are going to be pieces of jars of clay. They were very common. So why would God put the treasure in jars of clay, which are us? The answer is very simple. So that you do not notice the container. Beyond that, it is to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Human weakness is not a barrier to the purposes of God. God works through human weakness. He works through each and every one of his children. It is a very American thing, just like it was a Corinthian thing, to find the most powerful people to keep passing on the gospel. That's never God's intention. In fact, it works in the reverse. When you trust the gospel to the most powerful people in culture, eventually the powerful people in culture become the focus and the gospel will die off in that part of the world. God is entrusted not to powerful people, but to jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to him, not to us or to the individual. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, Paul takes this idea of the treasure in a jar of clay so that the power belongs to God and not to us. And then he gives this series of contrasts. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed and not driven to despair. Here's what he's saying. The jar of clay, that's us, may be afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down, but the treasure will never be, dis- never be crushed, It will never be the point of despair. It will never be abandoned, and it can never be destroyed. We are afflicted. We are oppressed, in other words, in 
every way. So you can think of any conceivable way for God's people to be afflicted. And Paul says that's true. But here's what is also true. We are not crushed. We are not confined in a place without escape. If you ever watched Star Wars, you remember in the very first movie, they're in a trash dump and the walls are closing in on them and at the last moment there's a way out. This is what God is saying. It may appear that we are being confined into a place with no escape, but saved at the last second. We are perplexed at a loss. This is the word used for the women who showed up at the tomb of Jesus on the morning of the resurrection. When he wasn't there, they were perplexed by what they saw, confused, at a loss for words. We may find ourselves in those moments sometimes. Maybe you've experienced being perplexed over the last several weeks. What is happening to the world? Paul says we are not driven to despair. We don't lose our mental composure. In war, they call this being shell-shocked where you just can't think a coherent thought, that you you can't pull your mind together. We are not, as God's people, driven to despair. We're persecuted, pursued, but we are not forsaken. We are never abandoned. Each and every day of our lives yields a fresh discovery of what Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We are struck down. This is a wrestling term, thrown to the mat. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. We are not wounded in an irreparable way. Now let me just be honest before I press on. A lot of this is unknown to most of you. We've grown up and known a culture to where we have been free to exercise our faith in a culture that has largely shared our faith or at least the core tenets of it. And what you are watching is rapidly our culture throw that off. It took a long time to get here, but we're there. And I dare say, brothers and sisters, these words, these few simple sentences are going to take on far greater meaning in the Christian community in the near future. That we're going to grow to understand more and more every day when Paul says we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our bodies. Now, if you keep going in verse 11, you'll notice he uses the word death, and then he uses it again in verse 12. What you can't see is the original language. There's actually two different words. In verse 10, he uses the word necrosis or deadness. So if we went down to the graveyard down New Hope Road and we dug up a body, we would find necrosis in the, in the coffin, deadness, a permanent state. The other word is thanatos, which means the event of death, the moment of death. So Paul says, we are always carrying in our body the deadness of Jesus. What does that mean? It means that we are constantly carrying with us a conscious awareness and a 
consciously made known truth that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. That Christ has made the once and for all sacrifice. And that because he was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scripture, we now have life. And this life is manifested, the life of Jesus is manifested in our bodies. So both are true, both now and forever. So Jesus' death, literally speaking here, is the source of eternal life to human beings. But it is also the death of those who minister his gospel, speak his gospel, and in our ministering, in our death, if you will, metaphorically, it is the means of life to mankind. He's going to say in in the next chapter, the old has gone and the new has come. And that we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. That the life and death of Jesus are both manifested in our bodies. Verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So that that, that we are brought to these moments, these death moments. Now Jesus said it this way. If anyone, anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. That means follow me to death. That we are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake and taking up the cross are one and the same. Now Paul here is indicating that in in his body, the body of death of Jesus, it relates to the sufferings which he has shared. It's similar, but it's not the same. Here's why. Paul did not vicariously die. He was not the atoning sacrifice for others. Only Jesus Christ is the one who died in our place. But in our death, in our taking up the cross, we are identifying with Christ. Paul started this letter this way. Chapter 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So Paul thought it was the end. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And see the play on words? Life manifested in our mortal flesh. This flesh that's going to die. That life is made known in that which is moving toward its end in terms of time and space. Richard Baxter wrote, I humbly bless his gracious providence who gave me his treasure in an earthen vessel and trained me up in the school of affliction and taught me the cross of Christ so that I might rather be a cross bearer than a cross maker. 
Now, what does that mean? Let me just bring it into the 21st century. I wonder what Paul or Richard Baxter, who wrote that in the late 1600s, I wonder what they would think of our homes today where we decorate with pretty pastel colors crosses. Now, I'm not throwing off on the fact you have a cross in your house. Don't go home and take it down. It's not my point. My point is it has become a point of decoration. We're not cross makers. We're not people who make them for decorations. We are cross bearers. We are people who the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus is manifested in our lives. Verse 12. So the death is at work in us, but life in you. Now this is the principle of the cross. Christ died that we might live. The great exchange is Christ's life for ours. So once Christ is in us and we are in Christ, we now take up the cross and the work of following Christ, of Christ following in our daily lives, death is at work in us. And as this is happening, life is at work in others. Suffering plays a key role in manifesting and delivering the gospel of Christ. This is how Christianity began. It began in a context of suffering, in a context of difficulty. Now, I just wonder, I just wonder, this is free, I haven't said this all day. I wonder, I wonder what's going to happen to the Christian faith in America when, when we realize that we can't maintain a freedom of preaching forever. That once the evil takes over men's hearts, they will try to stamp out the gospel. Will we then retreat and give up our Christianity? Or will we do what people have done for centuries all over the world? Will we press on and embrace suffering for the sake of Christ? Will we keep speaking? Will we be who we have been called to be? This is Paul's conclusion. And to display his power, that is God's power, for his glory, God entrusts the treasure of the gospel to jars of clay. So here's really what Paul's answering. Why do you keep speaking, Paul? All this suffering, why do you keep proclaiming the gospel? Why should we? Verse 13. Since we, notice the plural, not just Paul, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, so that is the Bible, but very specifically Psalm 116, I believed and so I spoke. Psalm 116.10 says, I believed when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. So in affliction, this is where this comes from. I believed and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak. Now, this is a very simple logic. Paul is saying, I believe what God has revealed in his word. I believe it. I believe what has been revealed in Christ. And because I believe it, I speak. Now, let's work the logic backwards. If I don't believe it, then I don't speak. This is what I commonly hear. Well, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't speak much because I just really don't know what to say. Well, you don't know what to say because you don't believe it. If you are saved 
by grace, through faith, through Christ alone, if, if that is clear that you believe it, then you can speak it. If it's not clear enough for you to speak it, it's not clear enough for you to believe it. Folks, this is simple. I believe, therefore, I spoke. The believing impacts what we say. So Paul is not saying here, follow my moral example. I'm a hero. Do what I do. No. Paul's saying this is normal. This is Christianity. This is the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Speaking follows the heels of believing. Speaking is the fruit of faith. So what I believe motivates us in the face of whatever, even if it's death and suffering. So I got to ask the question, what did Paul believe? What in the world did this man believe that kept him motivated? Very simple. Verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Now this is applied theology. So here's what he's believing. That Jesus is risen from the dead. That Jesus is going to raise us from the grave. He's going to go into an elongated explanation in chapter 5 over this. And number three, that we're going to be glorified. That we're going to be brought into the presence of God himself. This motivated this man. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us. So kill me, Paul says. Kill me. Because the one who is the author of life and my salvation is going to raise me from the dead and he's going to bring me into his presence. So Paul is saying here, I have assurance that however you persecute me, however you beat me down, God's going to raise me up and he's going to present me along with all true believers before the presence of his glory with exceedingly joy. Now this is what sustained this man and this is what has sustained God's afflicted people throughout history. This is what gives the peace that passes understanding. That we say with Jude, not to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. So he believed in this truth of the resurrection and glorification. But there's a, there's a bigger truth he believed. He said, how can it be bigger? The second motivation is the glory of God. And we, we can pass right over this. For it is all for your sake, verse 15, so that his grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now what you have in this verse is the penultimate and the ultimate. Now let me explain that. It's a music term. If you've been around here long, I've explained this before. So you know when the choir is singing, and won't you be glad when the choir comes back, we get rid of all this mass stuff. Amen. So the choir's singing, and they come to this moment, and you think that's it, and you start clapping, and then you go, oh, they started singing again. I've done it, right? Now, I don't do it in the second service because I know it's about to happen. But I always watch you do it. It's fun. Anyway, so the penultimate sounds like the crescendo, but it's not. So here's what sounds like the crescendo that's not. Beginning of verse 15. It is all for your sake. It's Paul saying, I, I speak the gospel, I take up the cross, I come to the point of death for your sake. That the gospel might get to you. Now this is crucial and important. 
But it's the penultimate note. What's the crescendo? What's the ultimate note? So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving. Why? To the glory of God. Jonathan Edwards simply said it this way. The ultimate end of the work of redemption is the glory of God. This is why God saves sinners. Yes, the sinner gets every benefit of it, but the sinner is not the ultimate end. The glory of God is the ultimate end. John Piper, reflecting on what Edwards wrote, wrote this. The love of God for sinners is not God making much of them, but it is His gracious freeing and empowering them to enjoy making much of God. Remember John 3, uh, Romans 3.23? That we fall short of what? The glory of God. But through Christ, through His redeeming work, we now can glorify God. We, us, not just the Apostle Pauls and a few people. The grace extends to more and more people. And as it extends to more and more people, more people begin to speak and they increase in thanksgiving and to the glory of God. As Paul comes to the end of Romans, his heart is filled with the same thought. And he says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, all peoples, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. There's only one way to bring glory to God, and that is through Christ and Christ alone. I trust that the Spirit of God is doing applying work in your heart already, but let's just state it succinctly as we close. Am I clearly living with the realization that God has entrusted the treasure of the gospel to me for his glory? That's a question for the believer. For the non-believer present, for the person who is not a Christian, those listening, the question for you is, do you, do you understand that Christ has died for your sin according to the Scripture, that He was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scripture, that this light of the gospel has come and it has been offered to you? That you who fell short of the glory of God can now know Christ and come into His presence and be saved from your sin if you confess your need of Him and cry out believing that in Christ alone you can be saved. For those who have believed that, the moment you believe that, this treasure is trusted to you. Your life turns 180 degrees. And basically this verse sums it up. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. That life ceases to be all about you and it becomes all about him. That because we understand his steadfast love and faithfulness, that now through Christ we can know him, we say not to us, not to me, not to us, Lord, but to your name. Give the glory. So once in a while, a guy goes to the Tower of London under heavy guards and he removes the crown. And they place it on the queen's head. 
It's usually a ceremony where the world is watching. And then after it's over, it's removed and placed back in safekeeping. I got thinking about that and I thought, you know, that's, that's kind of the way the gospel world treats it. A few years ago, the king of the gospel died. Billy Graham and the evangelical world felt like, if you read the articles, like evangelism's over. Graham's dead. No, it's not. God does not have a king that he puts the crown of the treasure on and that person is the one who shares. It's not how it works in the church. That once a week I get it out and put it on and I share and then we put it back and we all keep it in safekeeping and next week we come back together and we get it out again. No, here's what God has done. He's trusted this treasure to every one of you who are in Christ. All of you. And listen, it's not worth $3.5 billion dollars It doesn't have a monetary value that you can put on it. It was worth the Son of God's life and death. It's been trusted to us. I mentioned a documentary I've been watching last week. It prompted me to go back and read an academic book this week. I don't really suggest it to you unless you, read, unless you like to read that kind of stuff. Here's the title of the book. Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? Why? How did Christianity cross social, economic, cultural and political boundaries. It's, it's the only religion that's ever spread that fast across that many boundaries in history. How did that happen? The book gives its answers. I think the answers are insufficient. I think the answer is in verse 7. Because God trusted the treasure to jars of clay And they knew and they believed that this surpassing power belonged to God and not to them. So slaves shared the gospel with their masters. Sons, after believing the gospel, shared it with their parents even after they'd been kicked out of their homes. Tradesmen, who had to make a sacrifice to the God of their trade, refused and stood for Christ and said, only Christ can save and provide. You see, in every strata of society, they believed, therefore they spoke. And Christianity spread. Christianity spread because God's got it rigged. Christianity's not dependent on a king or a queen. And every time some form of a king or a queen are created in Christian circles, Christianity dies in that area. It'll take a little time. But slowly, surely, when it's riding on one or two people, it dwindles and dies because God didn't design it that way. God entrusted this gospel to jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
I read this this week. It stopped me in my tracks. I'd never heard this story. The gospel had gone to the Congo. At the 100th year celebration of the missionaries coming with the gospel of the Congo, which Joseph Conrad wrote the book about the Congo, The Heart of Darkness, an evil place. They were celebrating how the gospel had come, and throughout the celebration, a village elder stood up and began to share how his village had handled the missionaries. Unbeknownst to the missionaries, to test them, they began to slowly poison them. And over time, beginning with their children, their children first began to die, and then the adults, one after another. And then the next wave of missionaries would come. The elders said they stayed and they kept proclaiming the gospel even though they were dying. And then he said, I quote, it was as we watched how they died that we decided we wanted to live as Christians. Death leads to life. Brothers and sisters, we cannot, we must not retreat in this hour. We must take up our cross and follow Christ. We must lay down our lives for the sake of Jesus for the sake of a lost world, and ultimately for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, I am so humbled by this text. And I plead, as I have all week, that you would humble my brothers and sisters and that we would realize who we are in Christ and that we would realize what we have been given and that we would live clearly with this realization that we are trusted with the treasure of the gospel for the sake of your glory. Confront our excuses and bring us to repentance. And we, may we, by faith, embrace who you are and who you have called us to be. We pray this in the name of Christ, who is our cornerstone. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.